0: Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I'm the host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today I will be speaking with Donna J. Drucker, a guest professor at Darmstadt Technical University in Germany. Her book, The Classification of Sex, Alfred Kinsey in the Organization of Knowledge, published by the University of Pittsburgh Press, is an in-depth and detailed study of his scientific approach. The book examines Kinsey's career and method of gathering vast amounts of data, identifying patterns and interpretation that was critical to his most influential works, Sexual Behavior in the Human Male and Sexual Behavior in the Human Female. Beginning with Kinsey's study of the animal world, she examines how he transferred natural science methods to sex education in his marriage course at Indiana University and ultimately to the intense and massive study of human sexual behavior. He brought into the interdisciplinary science of sexology a thoroughly naturalistic approach and believed that taxonomy, collecting, classifying, and describing patterns, revealed truths about the natural world and worked against what he considered the prejudice of misclassification. Kinsey was committed to scientific objectivity, free of moral judgment. He believed possible, through unprejudiced observation, the recording of mass data sets, and the application of biometrics. Nevertheless, Kinsey's sex research has significant implications for understanding sexual differences between men and women, sexual preference tied to economic class, and the consideration of normal sexual behavior against standing societal norms. Brucker's work brings attention to the historical contingency of the social and technological process by which information is produced and encoded, allowing it to be relayed over time. Drucker's close attention to method and the role of data-gathering technology again raises the question regarding the role of scientific practice in values formation. Here's my conversation with Donna Drucker. Now let me introduce you to the author, Donna Drucker. Hello, Donna.
1: Hello, Lillian. Thanks for having me on the program.
0: Welcome to the show, and thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. Your book is a fascinating study of Kinsey's, uh research methods, so first, before we get into the book, I want you to know, you tell the audience something about yourself, your background, and how you came to write the book, The Classification of Sex.
1: Sure. Uh, I was a graduate student at Indiana University, and when I was looking for a Ph.D. project, I wanted a project that would um, bring together both history and my background in library science, since I also have a master's of library science. And in 2003, the Kinsey Institute celebrated the 50th anniversary of Kinsey's book on women, sexual behavior, in the human female. And there was a very large conference bringing in scholars from around the world who studied women's sexuality. So I became very deeply involved in that conference, and I also was taking a class from the professor who became my advisor, Judith Allen, and she taught a class on the history of sex research. And I first began to dig into Kinsey's work on gall wasps in his biology textbooks. And the research question came to mind that many people ask me nowadays, how does somebody get from studying something as inconsequential as a gall wasp or seemingly inconsequential to the study of human sexuality? And that question just took a hold of me in 2003 when I began this work. And I've um, been thinking about it ever since. These, these are c- interesting questions. And
0: the way you lay out your, your study uh, really progresses through how he started with natural sciences and ended up with human sexuality. So what are the main arguments of your book? Uh, what, do you, what is the main thing you're bringing to the table?
1: The main thing I'm bringing to the table is a focus on classification as an organizing principle for Kinsey's scholarship throughout his life. That was the, what I when I was reading all of Kinsey's materials, all of his Galwass material, his high school textbooks, his teaching material, his work on the marriage course at Indiana University, and then the male and female volumes. What was striking to me is that Kinsey was always interested in gathering as much data as he could, in organizing it, and then in displaying it. He went through those three steps with any body of knowledge that he came across. And I realized that that, those patterns of classification were what linked his natural history with his um, human studies. What was was his his, uh, philosophy of science? He had
0: a very distinct philosophy of science.
1: Yes. He believed that the best science was available to the human eye through naked eye observation. Simply the idea that you could only gather science through what a human being could see that he he thought microscopes were all right for gall wasps, but he re- really didn't believe in psychology or um, any any science that attributed um, any characteristics to something that was not actually observable. So he was a behavioralist with animals. Um, I don't know exactly. If, I don't know if I would use that term. Exactly, but he enjoyed um, uh, collecting insects in the field, in breeding them once he returned to his home laboratories, and in um, studying them and organizing them after they uh, died. Now he he went into sexology. What was the
0: state of sexology at the time when he was making this transition? What was it? What was the
1: field like before Kinsey? Well, he was. Um, his primary influence, or one of his primary influences, was a uh, man named Robert Latou Dickinson, who was a uh, Brooklyn-based um OBGYN. And Kinsey had gotten in touch with him about some uh, sexual techniques that uh, jo- uh, that um, I'm sorry that Dickinson had published about in a book called Human Sex Anatomy. And he really appreciated Dickinson's ability to. Um, use uh, observation over time of women's bodies in, internally and externally to gather information about their sexuality. Dickinson was fairly well known in the United States. Of course, the dominant um, understanding of se- human sexuality at the time was, of course, Freudian and Jungian, which, of course, is not, um, it, which is, of course, a drastically different direction of studying. Um, sexual behavior and desire and emotion than Kinsey took. So he was, he was challenging a rather dominant paradigm that focused on the mind rather than on the body. So how did he make the transition? It's A, it's a, a lot of your story is about
0: him making this transition. And it's fascinating mm-hmm. uh, to me how he did that, mm-hmm. uh, starting with that marriage course at Indiana University. Talk about that, those early years.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, he he was interested in sexuality as uh, individual, you know, from the time he got married, or at least from the time he got engaged on on forward, or perhaps earlier. But as a for sexual behavior and sexuality as um, intellectual concepts, he really became interested in that in the late nineteen twenties and early nineteen thirties when he was teaching a biology pedagogy class to. Uh, Indiana University students who would become biology teachers in the future. And they, he realized that they needed some instruction about how to teach young people human sexual physiology, among other types of human physiology, in a way that was, didn't have a religious overtone, that didn't have a moral overtone, that was just purely descriptive. And he starts teaching uh, human sexual physiology in his uh, college classes, which we know because he kept teaching notes and final exam notes, in which he asked the students to design a lesson about um, teaching uh, young high, high school and junior high students about sexual behavior. And after after he um, starts incorporating some sexual related sorry, sorry some sex related material into his teaching, he starts a faculty reading group. He starts reading as much as he can about um, sex education for young people. He becomes in some programs on a involved in some programs on a statewide level, and he finally um, um, meets with and word of this. His interest starts to get around campus. It wasn't that big of a place. And in 19 late 1937, early 1938, a group of students approach him about teaching a non credit marriage course, um, and so. He of course is very excited by this and starts organizing a faculty team to teach the courses over a summer. They start in the summer of 1938, and they involve questions of marriage from a, a sociological, sen- um, sorry, from a sociological perspective, from a legal perspective, from a medical perspective, but also from a physiological perspective, and. Those lectures, whose all of whose um, texts still exist at the Kinsey Institute, so you can really track how they change over time. Word of those lectures again gets around the campus pretty quickly, and at first the uh, marriage course is restricted to married or engaged students and faculty, but slowly the course gets larger, and there's a kind of telling scene in the Kinsey movie where people uh students try to pretend they're engaged just to get in the class and um they the course takes off like like wildfire around campus and finally um the president of the university gets pressure from local uh clergy and some parents and he tells Kinsey you need to either Hand the marriage course over to the um, medical school or to the medical faculty in Bloomington, or you need to give up the marriage course and pursue this research full time. And Kinsey, of course, pursues, starts to pursue the research in earnest full time.
0: now he, he he sees these students are coming become, become for him part of his research. Uh, uh, he's interviewing these students. I thought that was all very interesting that they would be willing to talk to him and that he would get honest information from them.
1: Yeah, how he frames it and how people, um, how students frame it, students who were interviewed much later frame it is that he basically t- at first tells students, you know, he's open to them coming to his office for, you know, pri- what he calls like private consultations or private conversations. And as these start to happen, he realizes, being you know the scientist and collector that he is, that these students are all sources of data. And so he starts to create a form in which he can um, record what students are, are telling or are telling him. And as far as we know that the, from both his side and from the uh, former student side that they were, Telling the truth are pretty close, pretty close to it. Okay, so
0: as he's gathering this data, this becomes a huge project. Talk about how it becomes way more than just this class or just a few students. And much of other people get involved also.
1: Yes. The The marriage course ends around September of 1940, and Kinsey is already thinking much, much bigger. He he starts to think. Uh, I want to get the personal sexual histories of a hundred thousand Americans. That's his goal. And he gets money from the Rockefeller Foundation, kind of through um, another avenue, so the Rockefeller Foundation doesn't really um, want their name attached to him right away because uh, they don't are not sure the direction the research is going. And so he's getting funding outside funding for his work, and he starts to hire a team, and and the team has to be completely on board with you know his his beliefs about about sexuality. And he just starts um, making contacts within any communities that are willing to to listen, and he he starts to collect using so a method akin to snowball sampling, which he calls 100% group sampling, which is where he and his team go to, like, alliance Club or, like, a women's, women's group. And he goes to the leader of the group, and he says, I'd like to collect 100% of the histories from your group. And he goes and gives a talk, and all of the group members need to agree to participate in the study. And then he, he and or one of his team members will interview each of the men or women, or in some cases children individually. If they were child interviews, they were accompanied by parents. So he does, starts doing the snowball survey. Um, his contacts start spreading. Word gets out that, you know, this scientist from Indiana, you know, is coming to New York City and wants to interview, you know, a a certain number of, um, like hotel managers or dentists or any particular professional group, and um, people just start um, start coming to him, and he collects most of the histories from um, Indiana, Chicago, New York City, and Philadelphia. He tries to get some histories from all over the country. It's just it, that was astounding to me that people would
0: would at that time. I mean, this is what 1930s 40s. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. were that willing to talk to a stranger <laughs> about the most private aspects of their lives?
1: Yeah, it's the uh, material in the um, mail volume especially kind of describes some aspects of the interview technique and and gives some hints at why people were so willing to uh, reveal their their private lives to a virtual stranger or a total stranger in that the questions start out very um, non, non-intimate, non like, how old are you? Are you married? Do you have children? You know, where are your parents from? And so on. And then the, ch- uh, the questions build up about childhood and then it, they get into adulthood. And the burden of denial was always on the individual. So if someone was never asked, you know, have you ever masturbated, for example. They would only be asked, when was the last time you masturbated? So the burden of denial was always on the individual. And if he or one of the other team members thought somebody was lying, there were several cross-checks within the interview. And if somebody was lying about one thing, it would usually um, come out in some other part part of the interview. So, and I think um, Kinsey was really, really personable. He really kind of enjoyed people. He enjoyed doing, he enjoyed the gathering of data and information. He enjoyed, you know, kind of being introduced to a a sexual world that he had no idea about. And that kind of interest in um, people as, um, or people's experiences as science, scientific objects, really pushed him forward.
0: Now, how many interviews did he end up gathering I mean, what was the sample for his his two books, you know, human sexuality books? Um, Behavior, actually with sexual behavior, because he didn't use the word sexuality, which you talked about, which I'd
1: like to know more about that. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, Over the entire project, he and his team collected slightly over 18,000 interviews um, or interviews from 18,000 individuals. The number of interviews per book was just over 5,000. Um, for the men's book, um, there were interviews from men who were in prison. and But for the women's book, there were not. Now, what came to mind when I was reading
0: about the massive amount of data and then how they had to sort this data using punch card systems that you talk mm-hmm. about, uh, so you had to have te- the technology to, to, to process it. Right. What was brought to mind with me was the idea that today we're talking about big data. Yes, and I'm thinking this is big data, it's the beginning of big data. Or uh, can you make the connection
1: there? Yeah, I think, um, as I argue in in the book, the project would not have been possible without adopting punched card machines to sort and analyze the the research material. It just simply would not have worked to calculate all the data by hand. For each individual um, interviewee, the team collected at least um, 350 pieces, individual pieces of data. For people who had very complicated histories, the form went up to over 500 questions. And if you multiply that by even, you know, 1,000, um, you know, you've got <laughs> you've got a lot of data on your hands. And so Kinsey saw the necessity of. Punched card machine technology to make sense and order all of that data, for sure.
0: So uh, his attitude towards this data, he was really committed to scientific inquiry as an objective, free of moral judgment, which today we we're very suspicious of that claim, right? We're like, mm-hmm. sure, <laughs> because he believed that it was he was he could do this with an unpre- unprejudiced mind and record this mass data sets and just sort of apply biometrics and just come up with
1: the truth. Right. So he claims to be as objective as possible. And there's a line in the female volume, um, I forget, about two-thirds of the way, that says something like, we know that we have some biases according to this data that people later on will probably figure out, but we are doing the best we can with this. And of course, you know, a lot of Kinsey's critics and even Kinsey supporters say, well, you know, he is not a neutral objective observer because he puts all types of sexual behavior on the same moral plane. And in doing so, that is a moral judgment, and Kinsey in the female volume says, "Yes, I'm aware that I have to make some kind of value judgments on these lines, but my method of making value judgments is much more free and open to the diversity of human behavior than most other systems."
0: So, in a sort of a very sort of scientific way, he's undermining a lot of standing ideas about human sexuality or human behavior again i said i just said the word sexuality and i remind myself he did <laughs> not use that word so please talk
1: to me about that before you answer the other question <laughs> yeah I, it's sexuality as a term does, is not something that um, he uses very very often he really wants to stick to observations of behavior and the relationship between um, behavior and different types of identity categories. And he reserves the word sexuality for a very few instances in the book on women where the, what he's studying, put in one case it's um, nocturnal sex dreams, where though the, the, what is actually happening in the phys- physiology of the body and in the mind is beyond his grasp. And so he deliberately doesn't use a term that he very often that he doesn't um, fully define or fully fully understand. Okay. So in a way, I'm sorry, God. So he does say,
0: he, is, is he saying that sexuality because it's basically in the mind? And that's not what he's about. He's about behavior. Yeah,
1: I think what's interesting about the, his work is that he actually never completely defines the term sexuality. Um, but he uses it when he's talking about the behavior and the thoughts, the experiences of people that are slightly beyond his grasp, like why people have nocturnal sex dreams at all. Why is that a why and why do women have them um, or I'm sorry why when women have them it's there's only a few women that usually have them, but the ones who have them have t- tons of them and they often have nothing to do with the woman's behavior when she's awake. So he uses sexuality in a, as a term to express when he's in, at a point of um, inability to kind of proceed further with, with thinking about a topic.
0: Well, does, he, does he define sexual behavior? Because what is a sexual behavior? I mean, you know, scratching your head, is that a sexual behavior? <laughs> I mean, what is?
1: um in general, he uses it for, um, the specific behaviors that he outlines in the male and female volumes. Um, let's see, nocturnal, nocturnal emissions or sex dreams, masturbation, um, what he calls petting, which nowadays we would call foreplay, um, petting to orgasm, um, premarital intercourse, marital intercourse, extramarital intercourse, intercourse with animals. <laughs> Yeah. But it's very, but
0: it's, but it's still, he still, it's very specific. He doesn't have a really broad definition of what would be included because in those definitions, he could be excluding other things that could be defined as sexual behavior. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. Well, he does. For each of those um, behaviors, the only way he, the only re- way he counts them is if the individual had an orgasm. Okay. For each of those behaviors, so someone and he actually, you know, says especially in the female volume that many people have all kinds of sex-related behavior that doesn't bring them to orgasm. It, but that's that kind of behavior is not counted in the in the volumes. Although he's aware of it, obviously, just to, it's just to make the counting easier because if you counted sort of things that. Just turns you on, and the difference between that and orgasm, just gets even more complicated. Okay, so what are what are his ideas about moral
0: values? He's, he's his research is kind of undoing things. Is he changing also his ideas of what is should be considered acceptable, appropriate in society by his uh-huh. work? Is his work is he influencing the work, and the work is influencing him, and how he's changing about how he views sexual behavior that's acceptable against societal norms?
1: Um, it's a little—it's a little hard to tell sometimes. Like he clearly intends the book to be a report on his data and on his findings, and he makes a very clear distinction between original research and applied research. He knows that other people are going to apply what he's found to their own work, whether they're in the legal profession, the medical profession, in psychology, almost any, in schools, anything, anything like that. But he really, in the books, tries to draw a very particular line between original research and applied research. In the male volume, he does have these, um, what he calls tables of kind of standard behaviors for, For example, like a a 25-year-old Jewish man who's been married once and um, has a college education. And so a clinician could go um, back to these tables and be like, oh, you know, this kind of person has about, you know, masturbates twice a week, has intercourse twice a week, and then has maybe one nocturnal sex dream or something like that. So he includes these clinical tables so that um, clinicians like psychiatrists and psychologists can use them to help patients kind of figure out if they're um, having kind of a normal amount of behavior or not. But in general, um, he is not intending, he's not seeking applied um, methods, or he's not seeking applied research. Now,
0: some of the things that he came up with in his findings of all these Thousands of people was that I found the most interesting was the racial class differences and the differences or not no difference between men and women in sexual behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, we hear a lot about his findings on homosexuality, but the race and class mm-hmm. and men and women. I think that that is very interesting. Uh, if we could talk about that a little bit,
1: sure. Yeah, he does not, he restricts the, just to talk about race first. Mm-hmm. He talks about uh, in the male volume, he has great plans to do a huge series of books, um, including a book specifically on African Americans. He'd like to do a book on Asians, but he passes away before more than the male and female volume are able to be published. So he's he collects data from non-white populations, but he's ne- it's never been published. But here and there in the male and female volumes, he does say, well, the class differences among Americans seem to be much stronger than uh, race racial differences, which I find, and he I think is referring to mostly African Americans, but also to Native Americans at that. At that point. So the race data is available, but it's just not, not, never been published. And in terms of social class data, he really, he finds in the male volume that men's social class and the social class of their parents, men's parents, matters quite a bit in terms of the kinds of behavior that, um, they engage in. He has a lot of admiration, open admiration for men who are generally, um, less educated. He usually uses um, education as a um, measurement of class, of social class, or as a hand kind of rule of thumb. And he has a great admiration for young men who are generally less than high school or only high school college educated, who go out and seek as much sex as they possibly can get, whether they're married or not. And he admires their kind of freedom and of um, self-expression, I guess you could say. And he has a lot of um, caustic words for upper-class white Americans who really restrict their um, who really restrict their own behavior and the behavior of their children in the name of marriage. And he thinks that. Um, The reason why upper-class white Americans engage in these so-called petting behaviors so much is because they're so afraid of kind of what will happen um, if they have sex before marriage, not in terms of getting pregnant necessarily, but in terms of kind of social condemnation. And, of course, Kinsey himself was more of a member of the upper class than he was of the lower class, so he's also kind of implicating his own bring upbringing in that um, in that scenario. But in general, he finds um, that cl- social class did not have as much impact on women's sexual behavior, and it's not entirely clear why that would be, why that would be. So he thinks that women are more influenced by their parents than uh, they are by their peers in terms of social class, which uh, doesn't totally add up.
0: Hmm. Okay, so uh, he's really kind of railing against middle class values at, the, yes. at his time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how was his work received? Was this a brand new approach to sexuality, but uh, to sexual behavior? Yeah. It wasn't psychological. It wasn't philosophical. It wasn't theological. It was very much grounded in biology.
1: Definitely, it was a it was a very um, new approach to thinking about um, human sexual behavior and the position of of, of sexual behavior in American culture. The, the mail volume came out first, and it was published uh, the first week of January 19, 1948. It was put out by a medical publisher. And as it started to get reviewed in all kinds of publications, from major newspapers to minor newspapers to medical journals to sociological journals, pretty much everybody wanted to get their hands on it. Um, it just became a landmark in American Culture and and thinking about private lives and the public lives of of Americans. It generated all kinds of um, attraction and interest toward Indiana University, towards Kinsey himself, um, and he restricted the press's access to it at first, and he was very reluctant to give interviews, which of course just made any interview he gave or anything he said even more weight, and so he was good at managing the publicity for the projects as well. So the book set off um, a real um, landmine, not a land that's too strong a word. Um, it was a real landmark um, for people, academics across disciplines. It was a landmark for the legal profession, for sociology, um, for physiology, for OBGYNs, for pretty much anybody who had an interest in Sexuality, which is pretty much anybody out there. So um, the book on women was received differently, though.
0: How how was it received differently? Was it that they were prepared for it by the previous
1: book, or was it because it was women? Uh, A little a little bit of both. The male volume um, had statistics such as, um, you know, uh, probably one in about one in. Six men, or about 10% of the American population, was homosexual. About half of all men cheated on their wives if they were married. Most men had some kind of premarital sex or or petting. And the book was published so soon after the World War, the Second World War, that the kind of science that Kinsey did was seen as being a sort of triumph of American-style democracy, American scientific inquiry, the freedom, the information, and the science that an American democratic culture could produce. Um, The book on women came out in 1953, and even though it's only five years later, there's a very different political culture and social culture into which it enters. And the female volume also includes material like Lots of women had extramarital affairs, women were masturbating, women were having sex with women and living as lesbians, and the um, American political culture had turned to the right, and it was a time where, um, of course, the McCarthy hearings were just um, beginning to start, global concerns about communism were on the rise, and nobody was in the mood to hear that women were home masturbating all the time. And so um, as a result of the, the publication, Kinsey ends up losing his, his funding, and he dies um, just about three years later basically from overwork and stress from trying to raise the money to produce his next book.
0: Now on this scale, this homosexual scale, I think he had a one, what was it, zero to six scale? Um, so when, when we say that he decided or he concluded that 10% of uh, males were homosexual, um, that seems like a fixed number versus a scale uh, of zero to six. So that seems more fluid, more like people are in a continuum. When he meant uh, 10% means 10% were fully on one side of the scale
1: not I'm sorry I should have I should have been more more clear about that. He found that approximately ten percent of men had been exclusively homosexual for about three years. and he doesn't say he actually does not like the word homosexual as a way of describing people. He likes it as a way of describing acts. and his idea with of course with the zero to six scale was that the zero to six scale would replace A homosexual heterosexual binary that had done a lot of damage to people coded as homosexual even if they maybe just had one same-sex encounter and so um, he found I think that about 47 percent of men had some kind of homosexual experience to orgasm um, at some point in their in their lives for example and he thinks you know, just using the word homosexual to discover as an umbrella term for all that behavior just didn't make any sense. That a scale would make more sense. That the fluidity that I think many people now
0: would embrace was was there. Definitely okay. Yes. Um, of his methods. I mean, did people? I know that people were maybe shocked or or comforted, whatever, by his um, results, his interpretation of what he, of the data, but. What about the method that he used? How was that received by scientists who would understand it? Statistical methods, you know, he's using biometrics—that sort of his whole process was that criticized? And what are the problems with his methods?
1: Um, yeah, his he gets criticized for, each, or and praised for each of his each of his different different methods. Um, in terms of collecting, um, he gets criticized for. Uh, oversampling people from the upper Midwest, um, for oversampling a white population, and in the male volume four, including prisoners in um, his sample, because no one wanted to think that prisoners had a um, any similarities to non-prison populations. He, he gets also criticized for focusing to some extent on urban areas Which many people believed had more homosexual uh, individuals and populations than other than other places. So he gets criticized for that. Um, He also gets criticized for in the male volume for the material on on social class because he argues in one chapter that a man's uh, a man will move a man's social I'm sorry, man's sexual behavior will predict into which social class he goes um, when he becomes an adult, and when uh, the American Statistical Association um, reviewed his facts and his methods, they really attacked that particular set of findings that the, there was no um, there was no causation in in that in that um, in that area. That, yeah, that seemed kind of an odd conclusion to me also,
0: that what their the sexual behavior in adolescence would determine the social class that that young man would go into, even though it was not the social class of his parents.
1: Yeah, it's, he's, that was not, um that, that math just didn't matter. But
0: the most important part of your work, lots of people have done work on Kinsey. And in the popular imagination out in the public, you know, mm-hmm. it's all the, all the really sexy stuff that people have been interested in and also his private life and, and his own personal sexual uh, characteristics and behaviors that we have focused in on. But mm-hmm. you're trying to add something here that uh, I have not heard before, which is actually paying attention to how he did his work. And, yes. Right, and so uh, you're bringing attention to the whole idea of the cont- uh, historical contingency of of the social and technological process by which yes. information is produced. Mm-hmm. So, talk to me a little bit about that. Um,
1: what are we saying? Right. I'm I'm arguing that. Um, well, I guess I should back up and say that. Um, what I've found in learning about Kinsey and learning about lots of other sex researchers like William Masters and Virginia Johnson is that people are really, including me, are really interested in how their personal lives affect their research and affect their studies. I think, you know, the television program Masters of Sex is an excellent example of exactly that um, phenomenon. And what I found with Kinsey, previous literature on Kinsey is that, it really oversamples or over overthinks his personal behavior at the expense of understanding the actual science involved in his in his work. And I think um, the four biographies that have been written about Kinsey and about the feature film and the the PBS um, American Experience version of of Kinsey's life are all very interested in. Explaining Kinsey's interests as part of a, basically, uh, a psychological, um, I want to put it, um, a psychological um, rebellion against his father. And I read all that literature and saw the movies, and I just thought, this is not, this may be true, but it's not what the record says. And so I wanted to kind of bring the science back into the sex research and argue that you can look at both the individual producing the work and the actual work processes and methods and outputs together. So
0: what do you think Kinsey, his long-term influence in terms of sex, sex research after Kinsey, how did he influence what was done after him?
1: Yeah, he... Um, he int- first of all, he introduced um, using technology to um, study sexuality um, in a very very clear way. Whereas his one of his successors, William Masters and Virginia Johnson, they heavily, heavily, much more heavily used technology to study sex research. And of course, no no sex research is done today without laboratories and in some cases MRI machines and other all kinds of measurement devices, um, let alone computers. And so he really introduces technology and not just technology, but also um, mass, uh, an interest in mass studies of, of behavior. Um, of course, you know, Freud, you know, based his studies on just, a you know, maybe a small handful of individuals, maybe not even a dozen. Um, and Jung also never used... That, as many individuals, um, so he also introduced the idea that you really needed to study a lot of people in order to get an idea of what um, most people most people were doing, and then in, in, just in terms of popular culture, his most clear legacy is that kind of figure of ten percent, um, that the idea that ten percent of the American population is homosexual. Um, and I would say I should back up and say probably 10, the number 10% and the zero to six scale are both his most popular lasting legacies because many, many people today still use the zero to six scale as a way of thinking through their own sexuality and where they fall. I think what it struck me uh, really strongly about
0: the book was how scientific practice, how science is done uh, has a great influence on values formation. Mm-hmm. You know, we think in terms of, you know, religion and other things providing uh, values, but uh, science here is very definitely forming, shaping, changing uh, values. Absolutely. By the yeah. practice, about the what, what is studied, how it's studied, and what is how it's interpreted.
1: That is for sure that... Um I don't know. I mean, I think Kinsey is one of the I I once Googled the the title father of the sexual revolution. And the two people who come up for um, for that term, whose names are associated with that term most commonly are Kinsey and Hugh Hefner. So um, I could we could argue one way or the other for both for both of them, I imagine Um, despite the weirdness of the term father of the sexual revolution. But I think in a lot of ways, um, Kinsey really prefigures a a dismantling or at least a challenge to popular structures of religion um, and replacing those structures with the power and authority of science. He got, I should just say as a side note, he got along with a lot of um, religious leaders, more than one might think, um, from all stripes um, of Christianity and Judaism. I don't know as much about if he was in contact with uh, Muslim or other um, leaders. But um, really, he is arguing for a world in which, um, you know, religion has... Religion operates as a unnecessary restriction on people's freedom of sexual expression. But what I was wondering
0: too about how does science, the way he's doing it also in a way reinscribe, reinforce particular behavior? For instance, you know with big data that I brought up before,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, some people are doing big data studies on what's happening on dating sites. You've got a huge uh-huh. amount of data of people, who they're responding to, who's responding to them, what people are looking for, and they're finding, you know, class prejudices and racial prejudices. And, uh-huh. and do we end up reinscribing that, uh, reaffirming that in some way by collecting that data and how we interpret it, what it means?
1: um I'm sorry are we inscribing like hierarchies of- or well if if you if you come up if you look at big data of dating sites
0: and uh-huh. you say well it looks to us like uh you know a majority of people are go are will not date will not date anybody who is not of their race
1: mm.
0: and by doing that you kind of say you can naturalize it and say well that is natural that's behavior it's natural behavior to discriminate mm-hmm. uh among race when you're dating, so in a way you kind of reinforce it
1: by saying it's natural. No? Um, I I don't study the present as clearly as right, but I don't, I, yeah, I understand that. So, but I but I think um, the hard thing about Kinsey's data and something that also Masters and Johnson come up against is um what you're getting at with the describing um uh, dating sites is the nature of desire and how you decide um that you desire somebody or how you decide to love somebody and what desire and love look like and kinsey says i think somewhere in his marriage marriage course lectures that love is an emotion that people ascribe to physiological feelings of desire. And he's basically, one could say he was just sort of punting the question because, you know, in a lot of ways, I think that's what people are looking for when they're reading Kinsey is, you know, why am I attracted to these kind of people? You know, why do people do the kinds of behavior that they do? They really want to know what is the the engine behind the behavior. But he was really... Not looking at that, he he says something like, "Love is for poets and for philosophers and for you know, uh, you know, scholars of literature or or for literature writers and novelists. Love is not, love is not for science. For science can't address love, and so he thus he leaves one of the great mysteries of human experience, um, you know, unexplored. So he was not romantic." Not in the research sense, no. <laughs> but every indication is that he really loved his wife and his wife loved him and that they loved all of their children. Okay. Uh, so, um, is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, maybe maybe a little bit about uh, Kinsey's ideas about gender. Sure. And one of my interesting findings was... In the last five chapters of the female volume, he has five chapters that are not related to the um, kind of categorization of behavior, the masturbation and premarital intercourse and so on, but they're a way to sum up all of the data that he's found on uh, animal or animal and human anatomy, physiology, um, psychology, brain science, and um, uh, hormonal science, endocrinology, and it's a radical—it's a radically different departure from the tenor of the, the male volume. And what he ends up finding is that um, men and women were very much alike in their anatomy and physio- anatomy and their physiological sexual responses. They had some differences in hormones. Not, but not as many as one might think, and that he really ended up thinking that if there's any such conc- such a concrete thing as gender difference, he didn't he didn't use the word gender, but, but if there was any difference between men and women, it was somewhere in the brain. It was somewhere in the somewhere in the brain, and he says, "Where that difference is, we don't know." And in a way, it's this really telling moment buried deep 700 pages into the female volume where a scientist admits that he and his team do not know something and that they're um, not, they don't really admit defeat necessarily, but that they're willing to leave a major scientific question unanswered, really. Um, And... It was just really striking to think that even a scientist as incredibly well-read as Kinsey was, who gathered thousands and thousands of any volumes and pamphlets and erotica materials and art and ephemera couldn't pin down any specific difference about men and women. Um, He sort of thought that there might be some gender difference in psychology. Um, But again, it goes back to that interesting... Um, idea that he he can only pin down difference, gender difference, in uh, using a science that he usually despises. That you can't um, that if there's some kind of mystery to the um, to you know the differences between men and women, it has to be in a science that he um, doesn't really like or understand. So I think there's this definite uneasiness about what the meaning of the difference between men and women is by the end of the female volume.
0: But when you brought up the whole issue that he said that he thought it was somewhere in the brain, that's very much where sex research, difference research is happening now. Is that not correct? The brain, the different brain between men and women's brains and how is that affecting
1: gender or how we see ourselves? Absolutely. Yes, there's been a lot of studies recently using MRI machines and fMRI machines where people are given sexual images or in the case of machines that capture motion, they're doing some kind of activity um, and researchers are studying the relationship between the brain, the mind, and behavior. It's really fascinating. So what do you hope that your book will, will do
0: for the field? What do you think it's contributing and what do you think it's hopeful help, that
1: it will do in terms of the field of yes, of science studies? Yeah, yeah, I think my book is contributing both to um, gender and sexuality studies and history of sexuality and to the history of um, life and human sciences. And as far as the first goes, I um, in terms of the field of gender, Gender and sexuality, I really hope to bring um, an understanding of Kinsey as a, not just a kind of one off um, scholar who just does the zero to six scale and then moves on, but really had some fundamental um, uh, contributions to um, the study of, uh, the scientific study of sexuality and, and gender. In, in the present, and that he should be taken seriously as a as a scholar, and not just as um, not just as a um, as someone who filmed sex behavior in his attic, although that's part of it. Um, to to really think of him as a a scientist, and in terms of the history of science, what I what I'd like to do is show kind of the fluidity of Science is moving between the insect world, the plant world, the animal world, and the human world. The distinctions that um, a lot of histories of science ended up having to make between, you know, natural world and human world, are not as clear in Kinsey's life, for sure, let alone his academic academic scholarship. So, my work really shows the broadness. Of possibilities for the history of science. I'm surprised this wasn't done before him, but I guess, like,
0: like you said, he had to have the technology to do it mm-hmm. uh, because of evolutionary theory and putting humans on the, on the, you know, the scale of animals. You would think that this would have been, of beha- uh, sexual behavior, would have been looked at closely before, outside of, you know, psychology.
1: Um it is to some degree by um, his um, predecessor um, robert latto dickinson who um, did these extensive studies of his um obgyn patients but the problem with um, doing sex research before kinsey and even you know through him and up until up until now is that it usually ha- it is usually done by um not just psychologists, but usually done by medical doctors. And medical doctors, you know, have a absolute, you know, um, authority in popular, popular mind, popular culture, um, as the arbiters of what happens in the human body. But, of course, they bring their own um, biases and prejudices to um, uh, the study of the body to, and its behavior. And so what Kinsey does differently is he's not a physician, and he has to constantly tell people, I still have scientific authority even though I'm not, not a physician. I just have a scientific authority coming from a different angle. And he's also not looking for disease. That's true. He's not looking to pathologize anybody. Um, the only people he really pathologizes are those who um, have sex without consent, um, to some degree. He doesn't really emphasize rape all that much, but he is aware of it, of course. Um, and uh, he pathologizes, uh, he doesn't even pathologize really people who have sex with children, which is one of the big um, co- contemporary moral problems with with his work. So he wants to put everybody under the um, umbrella of relative normalcy. Okay, so you have been really generous
0: with your time, and I have one final question for you. What are you working on now?
1: Right now I'm working on a new project related to the history of the American women's health movement in the United States from the, 1970s through the present. I was just at Duke University studying um, their materials from the Feminist Women's Healthcare Center in Atlanta, and I came across a cervical cap study that um, women's health centers across the country put forward to the FDA in the early 1980s. And um, they wanted to advocate for a specific kind of birth control that they were, they thought women really um, responded well to using. Although the FDA didn't approve their um, um, request to make the cervical caps widely available, what this episode in um, history is show, shows is that um, the kind of contrast in the views of science and technology between um, women's healthcare advocates and their patients and the federal government. Like, what, what kind of science is really the best for women? And that's what I'm working on right now.
0: Okay. Thank you, Donna, and to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. This is your host, Lillian Barger.